Welcome to She Reads Black, where your girl has decided to read books by black writers, then come to talk about them here. I focus on science fiction and fantasy novels as my humble and grateful attempt to amplify the voices of black authors who present the black experience in this extraordinary perspective. This is episode two. And before I start talking about our book for today, I would like to apologize for the long gap between the introduction episode and this one. Life literally got in the way. But without further ado, let's get into it. The first book I will discuss in this podcast is The Prey of Gods by Nikki Drayden. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the book gives me the best of both worlds when it comes to the African literary experience, an African-American author and a book that is set in Africa. Uh, Nikki Drayden is a system analyst, a girl who codes, and the novel is set in the future version of South Africa, where robots, renewable energy, and genetic engineering are commonplace. We also explore the cultural and tribal traditions that are thousands of years old, old beliefs of deities that live among us, and sorcery that is well hidden in everyday life. I will try my best to be as spoiler-free as I can. Any details I mention here are already present online as book reviews or reads comments, etc. And here I have to issue a content warning. This review will include mention of sexual assault and child abuse. So here we go. The book, which is Miss Drayden's debut novel, was written during the National Novel Writing Month, affectionately known among writers and readers as NaNoWriMo, where writers, published or otherwise, dedicate the month of November every year to the great feat of writing a 50,000-word novel. Nikki Drayden embarked on writing The Prey of Gods in 2009. However, it was published much later in 2017 by Harper Voyager and generated quite the buzz on Instagram and YouTube. Let me read you the Goodreads summary of it. In South Africa, the future looks promising. Personal robots are making life easier for the working class. The government is harnessing renewable energy to provide infrastructure for the poor. And in the bustling coastal town of Port Elizabeth, the economy is booming thanks to the genetic engineering industry, which has found a welcome home there. Yes, the days to come are looking very good for South Africans. That is, if they can survive the present challenges. A new hallucinogenic drug sweeping the country, and emerging artificial intelligence uprising, and an ancient demigoddess hellbent or regaining her former status on, by preying on the blood and sweat, but mostly blood, of every human she encounters. It's up to a young Zulu powerful girl, uh, powerful enough to destroy her entire township, a queer teen plagued with the ability to control minds, a pop diva with serious daddy issues, and a politician with even more serious mommy issues to band together to ensure Uh, there's a future left to worry about. So we already get a glimpse of the elements that we will encounter in the book. Mythological creatures in human form, artificial intelligence, robotics, queer characters, drugs, and secrets. I was personally hyped, but not prepared for the ride ahead. Let's start with the cover art. It's It's very interesting, and I will post the Goodreads link of the book in the episode notes so you can see it for yourselves. It's eye-catching, and I am sure that if I have seen it on the shelf of any bookstore, I would be intrigued. 
The artwork is by the American artist Brenoch Adams, whose online portfolio will also be linked in the notes because his work is amazing and depicts a little black girl with the scariest look on her face, a combination of mischief and threat. Escorted by an adult-sized robot holding a holographic-looking umbrella as a sign of servitude to the little girl. They both stand in a field with the backdrop of a high-rise metropolis in the far distance. The book is composed of almost 45 chapters, if my memory serves me right. And I'm too lazy to go back to my Kobo app and open the book again. Each chapter is told from the point of view of a different character. So as a reader, you have to keep up with the changing perspective and emotions. Uh, it's set in South African city of Port Elizabeth in the year 2064. Nikki Drayden visited the city as a part of an educational invitation or internship, for the lack of a better term, after the apartheid ended. And it clearly made quite an impact. So let's show the city some respect for a bit and brace yourselves because I got knee deep in researching the history of the city and you'll have to just hear it with me. Um, so Port Elizabeth. Uh, this seaport is located in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa, facing the Indian Ocean at what is known to be Algoa Bay. Uh, it's currently a part of the Nelson Mandela Bay Metropolitan Municipality, one of the eight metropolitan municipalities of South Africa. It's the sixth most populous city in the country and the most populous city in the Eastern Cape. It's literally its cultural, economic and financial center. It's also one of the best cities in the world when it comes to pleasant weather. And as any city in colonized Africa, it was named after a white lady. I was hoping it at least after a monarch of the same name, but it was named after Elizabeth Frances Duncan, the late wife of Lieutenant General Sir Rufain Shaw Duncan, a British army officer in the Napoleonic era, which roughly extends between November of, of 19, not 19, <laughs> 1799 and June 1815. After his death, which affect, after her death, sorry, which affected him deeply, he went to Cape Town on the western side of South Africa. Then he was stationed as the acting governor of the Eastern Cape, and he named the rising seaport after his late wife. That, uh, that's how it became Port Elizabeth. Its early inhabitants, however, were the hunter and gatherer ancestor of the San people, and their presence dates back to 10,000 years at least. 2,000 years ago, they were gradually assimilated by the agriculturalist population ancestral to the Hosa people. The area came in contact with European quote-unquote explorers in the 15th century. Portuguese explorers, explorers claimed it for the Portuguese crown to control the trade in the Indian Ocean and compete with Arab and Indian traders. It was later occupied by British armies in the Napoleonic era, which served as a gateway to the Dutch-speaking settlers. These colonies were the starting points of the apartheid South Africa we have come to know in, in the past century. It was followed by immigration waves of other nationalities, including Arabs and more importantly, Indians. Under apartheid, the South African government established legal racial seg segregation and started programs to separate communities physically as well as by classification and custom. This will come into play in the novel, so I thought mentioning it was worthwhile. The forced relocation under the auspices, auspices, auspices of the Group Areas Act uh, of the non-white population from mixed areas began, began in 1962, causing various townships to be built for their use. The classification was sometimes arbitrary, 
and as in many other localities through the country, many citizens appearing to have mixed ancestry were forcibly located uh, from 1965 throughout to 1975. These areas were valued as primal real estate, and the city planning was viewed as the prototypical apartheid city. Naturally, the city was home of multiple anti-apartheid movements through the years, including the 1952 Defiance Campaign, where the African National Congress and the South African Indian Congress called all South Africans to stand up against the apartheid government and just laws directed at black Africans, Indians, and other people of color. Another movement was the 1985 consumer boycott. African National Congress affiliated United Democratic Front in 1983 political consciousness in black townships grew. In Port Elizabeth townships particularly, black South Africans demanded the integration of public institutions, the removal of troops from black townships, and the end of workplace discrimination. To launch an effective campaign to cripple the white-owned institutions of Port Elizabeth and to undermine the legitimacy of the apartheid, several women, yay for us, suggested the idea of a consumer boycott to the Port Elizabeth Black Civic Organization in May 1985. The economic boycott began on July 15th and received massive support in townships around Port Elizabeth. In September of 1985, white business owners became desperate and called the government to meet the demands of the black South Africans. In November, the boycott was still hurting white businesses in Port Elizabeth greatly and the white South African government reached an agreement after the formation of the, uh, with the Port Elizabeth Black Civic Organization, which stated that the boycott would hold until March 1986 if business owners arranged for the release of black leaders. Currently, the city is home to almost a million South Africans of varying ethnicities and has a great economy that relies on automotive assembly and sustainable tourism. I went on quite the tangent because the city is quite fascinating. And in the book, the 2064 version of the city continues to pride itself on its booming economy thanks to genetic engineering that rest restored laboratory-made ver versions of extinct animals and eradicating many diseases with their super vaccine. Another element is the advancement of robotics. Robots don't only support modern, modern industries, but regular people have personal robots called the alpha units that help them navigate daily life. Our dream of sustainable energy seems to have come to life because they use solar energy in, to uh, power wells in nearby townships. And the coastal city is not underwater as we anticipated thanks to the melting polar ice caps. So maybe people manage to reverse the climate crisis after all. But the genetic engineering uprise is not all rainbows and unicorns. The city is infested with an uncontrollable amount of dig dig, a type of deer that snatches food from tourists and poops everywhere. Now that my long-winded tangent about the city is over, let me introduce you to the characters. The book starts with Muzi Kiasi McCarthy, or Muzi for short, your average teenager who's not so average. He's essentially a biracial kid, part Hosa tribe, pa part Irish. He was raised by his extremely traditional Hosa grandfather, commonly known as Papa Fuzz, or affectionately known as Papa Fuzz. For some reason, he gave him a Zulu name that, may, that means the father's house. He goes to a decent high school, performs well academically, and is a part of the rugby team. He also has a crush on his best friend and classmate Elkin 
who is generally up to no good and has a mutual hate-hate relationship with Papa Fuzz. It's also a source of concern because he worries about coming out as gay to his grandfather. Muzi is always accompanied by his alpha by his personal alphabot uh, or alpha unit that he uses as a cell phone, a personal computer, and a keeper of his personal diary. He has an older sister who is happily married. She and her husband work in the genetic research company Genzen, which is responsible for the dick dick epidemic. <laughs> the story with starts with Elkin, who has clearly solemnly swore to always be up to no good and invites Muzi to smoke the local version of marijuana in his house. It's called Daga and informs him that his cousin, who happens to be a drug dealer, gifted him samples of a new drug called Godsend that is guaranteed to blow his mind. He hallucinates himself a crab while Elkin is flapping like a dolphin. The next character is Sydney, a young black woman who works two jobs to make ends meet. In the daytime, she's a manicurist in a beauty salon and at night, she's a security guard at Jensen. She navigates the city on her small motorbike and she also has a personal robot that she uses as storage space for her nail kits. While working on her first client in the salon, an eccentric white lady with an exotic pet that keeps biting Sydney, we come to realize that she can wield magic charming her client and keeping her pest of a pet from biting her. And she has memories that can date back to centuries ago. So is she a witch or is she the demigoddess the book intro promised us? She also uh, is the reason behind the series of murders that are plaguing the city and she is no Dexter when it comes to covering her tracks. Next come Nomvola, a young Zulu girl who is probably the girl depicted in the, in the cover art and she lives in a township near uh, Port Elizabeth. She's 10 and lives with her mother who suffers from debilitating depression, forcing Nomvula to grow up much faster than the average child. She, she finds making friends very hard with, uh, with children her age and the other kids naturally shun and bully her as the weird one. But anyway, she prefers to spend her free time dreaming of flying. It is alluded that she is the product of rape. Her mother says that she was raped in a dream by the town's sculptor and gift ship owner, um, Mr. Tao. Mr. Tao strikes a seemingly creepy friendship with Novula, which starts with him asking her to pose for him uh, for his next art piece, and ends with the mother mustering unfathomable strength to bust them both in his shop, accusing Mr. Tao of abusing Novula the same way he abused her. What is told between these two events is that Mr. Tao admits to Nomvula that she is in fact his daughter. But in a Greek mythology twist, Mr. Tao is Zeus. <laughs> he is no ordinary father. He is a supreme god with a and the creator of the universe. In other parts of the book, Sidney explains how he created the world in stages, starting with a set of majestic trees. Then in a weird twist of events, he fathered humans, with his consecutive animal wives, a crab, a dolphin, a peacock, and a bunch of other animals. Humans carried these animal spirits suppressed in their subconsciousness over millennia, and he teaches her how to fly and reach highs as close to the sun, and she finally understands how spe special she is. Her superpowers unfortunately are completely unleashed in the most unfortunate circumstances when her mother instigates the township people to attack Nomvula and Mr. Tao. Nomvula is both enraged and terrified. And that was the event that unleashed her powers, but also brought her to Sydney. 
She also realizes her impact on machines because she is the catalyst behind the robot rebellion. I tried to look for parallel myths to Mr. Tao and the creation of the world in Zulu or Hosa tradition, but not much luck. This seems to be an original pantheon straight out of the author's imagination, and I quite like that to be honest. The two other important characters are the pop diva of Indian descent called Rhea, who has a brash, hypersexualized public persona, but suffers in secret from multiple sclerosis, and has a strained relationship with her father, who is an established physician, and does not approve of her life choices. Additionally, their relationship got even worse after her mother passed away. The secret dealer of her not-so-secret drug habit, and the occasional befriend with benefits, happens to be rife. Elkins, oh-so-generous with illicit drugs cousin. <laughs> the other is a well-meaning, dedicated white politician named Graham Stoker, a respected Port Elizabeth councilman who moonlights as a drag performer, performer named Felicity Lyons. Anne has an overbearing, ambitious mother with a foggy, with a foggy past who seems more invested in his political career than he is, organizing fancy fundraisers with the creme de la creme of the city and wiping his memories every now and then to keep him on the path she has envisioned for him. He has a shady assistant called Mr. Mbendi who always seems like he's hiding something, but Councilman Stoker is more than just a drag queen. The book also dedicates a few chapters to the alphabets, albeit they are mostly in the series of zeros and ones, an homage to Ms. Drayden Craft, probably, which is coding. And I'm not sure if someone would sit and translate the numbers into words, but we, what a fascinating dialogue we might find. So, the plot is a roller coaster of events, as Ms. Drayden has quite the vivid imagination. The first half of the book introduces the characters, giving each of them a chapter. The second half brings all these characters together in a believable but interesting series of events. Several plot points have a purpose that leads to the collision of the main characters in the main event, which is Rhea's big concert, where Felicity Leon is scheduled to open and Sydney plans to crash. And then Sydney's backstory is further explained. She's an exhausted demigoddess who lost most of her powers over the years and was doomed to live the mundane life of humans. She's quite bitter about that and devises a complicated plan to regain her powers and also release the animal spirits suppressed in the human minds. She reminds me of Killmonger from Black Panther with her I want to free these humans proclamations, while being completely vindictive and self-serving. She also realizes that she has competition. Since Mr. Tao went Zeus mode, I, am, I have very strong feelings about Zeus, <laughs> and fathered another demigoddess who is younger, stronger, and might hinder her plans for world, for world dem domination. So, the dictic infestation is the key to the genetic engineering plan devised by Mr. Mvendi and sanctioned by Councilman Stoker to be developed in the Genzen labs where Muzi's sister works as a scientist and Sydney works as a security guard. So you can see the three degrees of separation happening here. So we go on, on this wild ride where Sydney plots the apocalypse and the new world order while the other characters work together to stop her. Go going through their own personal journeys in the process, discovering the se their secret powers, real selves, and mind-blowing family secrets. They visit unimaginable places in order to confront their weaknesses and biases because they realize something bigger than themselves needs to, needs to be confronted. 
There are giant robots and genetically engineered beasts and a whole lot of material for a great movie. The, mo the book introduces other interesting elements. It introduces an element from the South African tribal traditions. Papa Fuzz insists on subjecting Mozi to Ulu Waloko, the ancient traditional circumcision ceremony and initiation rite into manhood, practiced mostly by the Hausa but not exclusively. The ritual is traditionally intended as a teaching institution to prepare young males for the responsibilities of manhood. I still cannot understand how, but anyway, it is still practiced and sponsored by schools. Mozi agrees under duress because he doesn't want to disappoint his grandfather, but uh, insists on getting it done on his own terms. The tradition has many issues, and this is per personally my opinion, and based on my research on other circumcision traditions and rituals elsewhere. The boys partake in it during their teen years, so they are under significant societal pressure, and their consent is highly questionable. And because it is performed by traditional coat surgeons, and coat, the sterilization conditions are not always up to par. The ritual also includes seclusion in the bush for a period of time and occasionally restriction of water. So many young boys ended up with botched circumcisions that required further medical interventions, and sadly, at least 969 initiates have died from complications resulting from the ritual since 1995 to today. And over the summer in 2019, a total of 21 boys passed away in separate initiation schools to the because of the restriction of water. So the health minister recommended that schools no longer practice the ritual in the summer months. I unfortunately don't expect it to stop anytime soon. The book also introduces the ugly mindset common among many black people in Mother Africa and the diaspora, which is the early sexualization of young girls and placing blame on young girls who are victims of sexual assault. Nomvula's mother catches her posing for Mr. Tao and assumes that he was raping her and sicks the township on him. But instead of consoling or protecting the supposed victim, the little girl, she berates her, encouraging the township folks to attack her as well. So she basically called her own daughter fast. And I was really angry reading this. But they all got what they deserved. And I mean the town people, not Nomvola. Uh, it also presents a good example of when scientists do something that they shouldn't. <laughs> but they do them anyway because they can. And we end up with all kinds of abominations. So here is my opinion. For the most part, I loved the book. It made sense and was believable considering its placement in the science fiction genre. The technological projections for a future 40 years from now are plausible. I felt that it was well, a well-balanced mix of science and mythology. And the main characters were well-written and their development is logical and seems complete. The dialogue is entertaining, especially between Muzi and Elkin but I felt that there are some continuity issues, like you are left to figure some stuff out on your own. There are characters with incomplete arcs, like Stalker's assistant, Mr. Mabendi, and his behavior that always gave me the impression that he might be hiding a great secret and I got nothing. <laughs> the same applies to Rife, Elkin's drug-dealing cousin, and Rhea's friends with friend with benefits. Uh, there are also questions that are left unanswered, where did the godsend come from? My nosy self is frustrated as hell by that, and I wanted a more detailed description of the city of Port Elizabeth and the Alpha units. I feel like it was intended to be a young adult novel, 
So when the dialogue between adults involved sex, it became a big and slightly off-putting. So despite my questions and my frustrations, the ending was satisfying and provided adequate closure while leaving the door slightly open for a sequel if Ms. Drayden chooses to add one. And I would be more than happy to read it. This concludes my review of The Prey of the Gods. 8 out of 10, highly recommend. <laughs> Nikki Drayden published two more novels, Temper in 2018 and Escaping Exodus in 2019. Temper doesn't seem to have a science fiction element to it, but a mythology or fantasy-based plot, while Escaping Exodus happens in a spaceship, and it doesn't get any more science fiction than that. <laughs> this brings me to the end of the episode, and I hope it was interesting enough to encourage you to follow the podcast. We are on most podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. And I hope you come back to listen next time. Follow my Twitter, Nubian Podcast, for updates, polls, and, melt- <laughs> and meltdowns. Till then, take care of yourselves and others. And because the pandemic is not over, wear a mask, wash your hands, and continue social distancing. Till next time, my friends.